We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Now, Hebrews chapter number two, a text of scripture that I'd like uh, to call to your mind tonight, familiar to all of you that are listening to me now. In verse number three, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Now, I'd like to use that expression, so great salvation tonight, as a text for the message I desire to bring to you. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Thou would that I could tell the greatness and extol the greatness of the salvation of the Lord. I'm told in the Bible that the salvation is of the Lord, not by works of righteousness that we might do. No, by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. I would that I could emphasize that. Salvation from its origin through its consummation to its finish is all of the Lord. Not by any deeds you might do or worth that you might merit do we present ourselves before the Lord. But salvation is a wonderful reality that God uh, sets out and foreordains himself. So great salvation, great in many ways, great from every angle that you might think of salvation, great in its origin, great in its author, great in its benefits, uh, great in its destiny, great in its sufficiency, great in its uniqueness, great in its provision, great in its plan, the salvation of the Lord. And on and on we could extol the virtues of God's great and free and eternal salvation that we enjoy within our heart. I'm glad that salvation is real. I, I know that I'm saved and I ought not to be. I have no uh, right to be. I have no merit to be except by the grace of God. But I'm so glad that I'm saved in God's grace and have the assurance of it and the confidence of it within my heart. I'm not afraid of tomorrow. I'm not afraid of death. Neither am I afraid of eternity, nor am I afraid of the enemy, Satan, or the demons. No, not at all. In the Lord. Now within my strength, I'd be no match for the devil nor his demons, but in the Lord, I can do all things through him which strengtheneth me. I'm so glad that I have salvation tonight. Sometimes folk look upon me and you that are saved uh, with, a, with a note of pity and an eye of pity as if to say how much you are missing of the pleasures of the world and the things of the world and the things the world offer. And they, they pity us because we don't dance or drink or dissipate or cuss or steal or cheat or loaf. They, they pity us, you see. But we don't need your pity, my friend. We all rejoice that we've been saved in God's grace and we're so glad for this great salvation that is wrought eternal life and peace with God within my bosom tonight. Now I want to speak to you upon this subject, a panorama of salvation. What do you mean, panorama, preacher? I, I think the word, in the way I want to use it tonight, means uh, an all-vision, an all uh, um, uh, seeing of what salvation involves, the blessing of it, and the, uh, the extent of it, and the benefits of it. Now we'll recognize that I could spend all the night talking about that if I took a panoramic picture of salvation and talked about every angle of it and all that I see from it and in it, I'd never be able to get it all said tonight. But I want us to look at about six or seven things in relation to salvation from a panoramic standpoint. We'll look it over and see something about these great things that salvation involves. And I'm reminded, number one, that in eternity past, uh, the Holy Father thought me. And then 
in Calvary's work, the Holy Son bought me. And then in sin's night, the Holy Ghost sought me. And then in the sinner's wilderness, the grace of God brought me. And then in life's sojourn, the devil has fought me. And then in life's trials, the potter has wrought me. And then in the, the uh, natural ignorance of the flesh, God's holy word has taught me. And so we'll look at salvation from those seven angles tonight for a moment. In eternity's past, the Holy Father thought me. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 4, we're clearly told that from the foundation of the world, we were known of our Heavenly Father and foreknown of our Heavenly Father. Now, does that, do you think maybe that somebody might have gotten born in the world that God did not know? Uh, maybe some poor boy like me, nobody, I don't have any virtues. My dad was not a millionaire. And uh, I, I, have no, I have no important social position in Greenville. And I'm no political power in South Carolina or anywhere else. I'm just a nobody that's been saved by the grace of God. Do you think somebody like me might have slipped into the human family and got God by surprise and caught God off guard and way down the line somewhere that nobody uh, showed up and God said, where'd you come from? Didn't know you were in existence. Where'd you come from? Who are you? No, no, my friend. God, my heavenly Father, knows every white baby that's ever been born in any palace in all America. But that same God knows every black baby that's ever been born in any hut in dark Africa or Brazil or the South Sea Islands. Amen. No mother has ever brought a child into the world, but that God was aware of that fact from the moment that child was born until the moment that child died. Now that's omniscience. We call that omniscience, you see. That's one of the attributes of God. Now I don't have that attribute. I'm not omniscient. I don't know much. I know a little bit, but I'm certainly not omniscient. But God knows everything. He made the Einstein that split the atom. Amen. Sure. He knew the Beethoven that wrote the great music, you see. He made the Shakespeare that wrote the great literature. God knows everything about every person that's ever been born in all time and eternity. God is never taken by surprise. So in the past, my heavenly father thought me. There was never a day when I was not known in the mind of God. And there shall never be a day when I shall not be known by my heavenly Father and by holy angels in heaven. Amen. And then I want you to note second, in Calvary's work, the Holy Son of God bought me. Amen. Colossians 1 and verse 14, the proof text, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, we're told, in Colossians 1.14. So, at Calvary's work, the Holy Son bought me, paid the sin debt for me, paid the price for me, and let me go free. Once I was a slave, but the price of my redemption has been paid. Once I was a bondservant to the devil and a child of the wicked one, but I've been adopted by a heavenly father who paid the price for my adoption. Once I was a member of the family of the devil, but now I'm a member of God's eternal family and the devil is no relation to me. I've been bought with a price and the price of my redemption is the work of my Savior upon Calvary's brow. And may I hasten to say that that price of my redemption is ample for yours. Though millions have come, there's yet room for one. There's room at the cross for you. 
The blood of Jesus shed abroad in my heart has not left one single drop of blood less to purge your guilt and to purge your sin and to wash you and make you a child of God as we are. Isn't that an amazing thing? Though millions have plunged beneath that flood by faith, though millions have been saved by blood, by the blood of Christ, there's not one drop less to purge any other guilty sinner that might come to the redeeming grace of God. His blood, his salvation is ample. And the Holy Son bought me, paid my sin debt sufficiently, and set me free at Calvary's brow. Now that's salvation. Amen. Now I'll admit to you that I'm guilty as charged. You bring the indictments and I'll not plead innocent of a single one. You name the indictments one by one, right down the line, and there'll be a long list. And I'll admit first that that list will be long, but I mark you that my sin debt was paid for every sin, for every indictment that you might bring against me, and not only against me, but every other guilty sinner at all time in eternity. That sin debt has been amply paid by God's Holy Son at Calvary. Amen. In Calvary's work, the Holy Son bought me to himself, paid my ransom price. You know, when I, th when I preached in the book of Ruth, and in that last chapter of the book of Ruth, oh, oh boy, I saw ten elders, relatives of ne Naomi and Elimelech. And when he sees these ten elders with their long beards and their robes and their staffs in their hand, he says, hey, come over here. And those ten men walk over to the gate of the camp uh, of the city, and they sit down in the gate. And Boaz says to those men, I, I, I want to buy back all that my uncle Elimelech lost when he left Israel and went down, to, down into Moab. I want to buy it back. And I want to see to it that it's deeded to Naomi. And then I want to see to it also that the name of Ruth the Moabitess, the Gentile bride, is included on that deed. And those elders said, see ye to it, see ye to it, go right ahead. We'll be glad to witness the transaction. And then another man comes by and Boaz says, hey, come over. And that other man is a nearer kinsman of Elimelech than Boaz is. And he's a type of the law. And Boaz said to that first kinsman, I want you to buy back everything that our uncle lost. And I want you to deed it back to Naomi and deed it to Ruth. And that first kinsman said, I'm sorry, uh, Boaz. I'm in sympathy with what you're thinking about. And I appreciate the fact that you're concerned about the lost parcel of land that our uncle lost. But he said, I don't have the price. He said, if I buy it back, it'll bankrupt to me. Now, he's a picture of the law. And if the law could save one single soul, it would bankrupt the law for soul number two. The soul, uh, not, not one soul has been redeemed by the law, nor ever shall be redeemed by the law. And that first kinsman said, I'm not able lest I mar my own inheritance. Well, that's exactly what Boaz wanted to hear. So he reached down into his pocket and took out the wanted price and the necessary price. I don't know what it cost. It makes no difference because Boaz was wealthy. He had silver and gold ample. But not only did he have silver and gold ample, but he had a motive precious. Because he was buying a bride for himself, you see. He was redeeming a bride for himself, Ruth the Gentile girl. So he took the money out of his pocket, the gold out of his pocket, and laid it down to the feet of those ten elders and said, See ye to it. I have bought back now the parcel of land, and I want you to see that the name of Ruth the Moabitess is included on that deed. And they said, see ye to it. And Boaz bought back that lost parcel of land and gave it uh, to Naomi and to Ruth. And in the same chapter it says, and Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Now there was a day when there was a price that had to be paid for my redemption. 
But not only was there a price that had to be paid, but there was a motive necessary that that price be paid. Otherwise, nobody would have paid what it cost to redeem my miserable soul. Jesus stepped forward and said, Father, I've got the price in silver and gold and houses and lands. I've got the price in my own precious blood that I'm willing to shed up in Calvary's brow. And not only do I have the price, but I have the motive since I loved him from the foundation of the world. And I plan that he be my eternal bride. I have the motive. And Jesus put the price down and brought my redemption up Calvary's brow. And not only my redemption, but he bought the redemption of every other Gentile bride that's been saved by the grace of God. In Calvary's work, the Holy Son bought me. That's salvation. Now I'm purchased with a price. I've been bought with a price. I've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Can you find anything finer than that? Is anything in all of the universe more precious than that? Is there a greater price that could be paid by angel, cherubim, seraphim, or human being than the price that was paid for my redemption upon Calvary's bow? No, my friend. The most wonderful of all heaven stepped forward and said, I'll volunteer. The greatest price of all eternity was offered in the life, sustaining blood of my Savior. And the greatest motive in all the universe prompted all of it, the love of God for a Gentile bride, you see. That's salvation. Amen. In eternity past, the Holy Father thought to me. In the work of Calvary, the Holy Son bought me. And then number three, in sin's night, the Holy Ghost sought me. Amen. The proof text, Luke 15 and verse number four. And in that text of scripture, you remember how uh, that when the great shepherd found that there was one lost sheep out of the fold, he left the 99 in the wilderness. And I shall never forget Jimmy Jones pointing that out to us a few Sunday nights ago here in Tabernacle Baptist Church. Do you remember that? How many of you remember it? Let's see your hand. Ah, how forcibly he impressed that upon my mind indelibly. I'll never forget it. That he left the 99, not in the fall, but in the wilderness. And sought for that one lost sheep that was lost until he found it. And he picked it up and put it upon his shoulder and bore it back to the fold. And that one lost sheep was me and you by the grace of God. The Holy Ghost in the night of life sought me until he found me. Now I can't claim that I was worthy to be sought. I don't tell you that I was worthy of the ministry of the Spirit of God and seeking me out and bringing me in. I'm not worthy of that. But somehow because Jesus loved me from the foundation of the world and somehow because Jesus paid the ample price upon Calvary's brow, the blessed Holy Ghost in the night of this life sought me out. Out from the multitudes sought me out. Out from all the laughter and the gaiety and the pleasure of a pleasure of that generation sought me out. Out from a generation grossly indifferent about God and eternal values sought me out. I didn't seek God. There's no one in this building that could honestly step forward and say, I sought God and found God. Sometimes I, find, I hear people use that kind of terminology. But if you're going to be truthful and technical, there is no such thing as that. There's not one sinner in this building that sought God. No, you don't. From the cradle, you go astray. 
And the only reason you're not in the penitentiary tonight, or in the electric chair tonight, or out in the wall of sin tonight, is because the Holy Ghost sought you out and arrested your soul and brought you to the Savior. You can't get up and shout because you're anything. You're nothing, and I'm a nobody. The natural man is enmity against God, not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. The natural man doesn't seek God. But when I was going in the opposite direction, and when you were going in the opposite direction, the still small voice of the blessed Holy Spirit lingered at my side and said, son, give me thine heart. Don't run from God. Come to the Savior, give me your heart. And by the grace of God, he turned you away from the mad rush of the multitude out in the world and brought you to Calvary and saved your soul and put you down in this congregation of the redeemed. You never would have thought it would have happened, would you? But it has. The Holy Ghost in the night of this life sought me until he found me. And that's the only way you can get saved. If you had any other panacea or any other way of redemption, what is it? I've never heard a preacher preach any other way. And if a man dare preach any other way, he's a false prophet. Men can't find their way to God. Somebody said, I prayed through. No, you didn't pray through. You believed and got converted. The Holy Ghost brought you in, you see. God brought you in. You say, well, I held on until I made it. No, you didn't. He held you until he got you in, you see. Let's get this thing straightened out. In the night of life, the Holy Ghost sought me until he found the one lost sheep. And when he found that one lost sheep, he put me upon his shoulder. And brother, I know of no greater place than to be rested upon the shoulder of my Savior. You talk about a fortress, that's it. You talk about an exceeding high tower, that's it. You talk about security, that's it. You talk about a refuge, that's none greater. You talk about delight. You, there's no greater delight than to be carried up on the shoulder of my Lord and my Savior. And he picked me up and bore me on his shoulder to the full. Then he turned it to pass. The Holy Father thought me. In Calvary's work, the Holy Son bought me. In the night of life, the Holy Ghost sought me. And then number four, in the sinner's wilderness, grace brought me. Grace brought me to the Savior. Now, the text again is in Luke 5, Luke 15, rather, verse number 5. We're clearly told that the great shepherd, ha having left the 99 in the wilderness, sought the one sheep until he found it. And when he found that one sheep, the sheep didn't lead the way. The sheep didn't even follow. But the sheep was born by the shepherd to the fold. And I'd like to say to you that in the sinner's wilderness, that's exactly what the Holy Ghost does for me and you. He brings us. We have been brought to the Savior by the grace of God. The holy grace of God has brought me and laid me down at the feet of the Savior. And that's the most glorious picture I think I've ever seen in my lifetime. A helpless lamb. And what's more helpless than a lamb not lost? But more helpless than a lamb not lost is a lamb lost. Both are helpless. Both are totally dependent upon the shepherd. But that lamb lost out in the night is helpless indeed and dependent indeed upon the shepherd. And that's us. But the shepherd is a great shepherd and a good shepherd and a gracious shepherd. And he sought me until he found me. And when he found me, he brings me by grace, brings me by grace and puts me down at the feet of Calvary. And there I am 
brought by grace, bought, brought by grace, bought by blood upon the cross, but brought by grace to a place where that blood could be applied and my sins could be washed away and purged in his precious blood. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that has saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace that has brought me safe thus far, and grace shall lead me on. When I've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the stars, we've no less days to sing God's praise. Amen. Grace, amazing grace, brought me to the Savior. I found my way, no, grace brought you. I paid my way, no, grace brought you. I studied my way, no, I served my way. I deserved my way, no, grace brought you. And so it is that I go on to say that in life's sojourn, the devil has fought to me. It had all, hadn't always been easy. You know, we folk at Tabernacle enjoy our religion. And everybody ought to enjoy their religion in a godly way, in a Bible way, in a sincere way. And that's the kind of enjoyment we practice and recommend at Tabernacle. We believe in, uh, in joy, joy unspeakable. The kiddies sang about it a while ago, and it's real. I'm so glad it is. But you know, we don't always live in, on the mountain or always in the sunlight. There's a battle that I, I have to face all along in my pilgrimage. In this life sojourn, the devil has fought me time and time and time again. Bought by the blood, but fought by the devil. Opposed by the devil. And I don't think that he'll ever be when the devil will concede that he's a defeated enemy and let me alone. I'll never forget Mother McAllister, who is with the Lord. A long time, one of the teachers in our Sunday school, a dare pillar in our church, one Sunday she met me here in this aisle and uh, 75 or more years old that when she met me that day, looked up into my face and said, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. And she said that so sincerely until it struck me. And I said to her, one of the most godly women I think we have ever had in our church and that I've ever known in my life. And I said, Mrs. McAllister, why do you want me to pray for you? I have need that you pray for me. Oh, but she said, the devil's bothering me. And I thought to myself when she announced that to me, how holy does a person have to become for the devil to admit that he's defeated? How close to God does a man have to walk for the devil to check us off his list? Will the day ever come even when my hair is hoary and snowy white? Will the devil concede defeat? Or must I battle the devil until my step leads me to the grave? And I'm convinced that I'm going to have to battle the devil until the last breath is breathed in and exhaled out of my body. I don't think the day will ever come when the devil will concede that I'm going to heaven. He's going to fight me every step of the way. Now that battle is not pleasant, but he'll do it in a thousand ways. He'll tempt you to doubt your salvation. He'll tempt you to doubt your security. He'll tempt you to doubt your own faith. He'll tempt you to doubt your witness and effectiveness. He'll tempt you to doubt the joy that you've got in your heart and tell you that it's fleshly emotion. He'll tempt you to doubt your wife and her sincerity. He'll tempt you to doubt your husband and his genuineness. He'll tempt you to doubt your pastor. 
He'll tempt you to doubt the deacons of this church. He's the great tempter and deceiver. And he'll tempt you to doubt yourself. Now, he'll concede that the pastor's right with God, but at the same time, he'll say, you just didn't get it. He's a liar of the worst kind. He's a father of all lies and the arch deceiver of the human family. And the day will never be when you're not going to be fought and opposed by the enemy. Listen to the proof text. In 1 Peter 4 and verse number 12, Peter said, Think it not strange concerning this fiery trial, which is to try thee, as though some strange thing had happened unto thee. But rather rejoice that you've been counted worthy to suffer with him, that when his glory shall be revealed, you can share with him in his glory. Now, don't think it's strange when the fiery trials come your way. When the devil gets on your shoulders big as a mountain and begins to threaten you and tempt you to believe a lot of lies about yourself and about other people and about the Bible. You know, the devil, if you're not careful, will tempt you to believe that maybe this book's not so. I don't suspect there's one Bible reader in this building. But what sometimes or another, while you've read the Bible, the old devil's cast that seed of doubt in your mind and said, well, maybe it's not so. Or maybe some of the miracles, the virgin birth, for example. The old devil will drop the seed of doubt in your mind and suggest to you that maybe the virgin birth, after all, is a biological impossibility. What a rascal he is. What a hard loser he is. Oh, he battles you every step of the way. What one of us haven't bowed upon our knees to pray, recognizing that we are commanded to pray and desiring to pray, and we bowed to pray, and the old devil begin to tempt you and to hinder you and oppose you when you try to do what God commanded you to do in this matter of prayer. We have that. I have that. And you have that. The devil's going to fight you. In life's sojourn, the devil has fought me. And I've had a few battles down the way. And I'm not talking about battles with people. I, I get along with people very well. And I'm not, I, I say that uh, uh, deliberately and sincerely. I get along with people very well. I think you ought to work it, get along with, get along, uh, getting along with people. And I work at it and I get along with people very well. And I had a few people in my life that I've had to separate fellowship with and part company with. But it always grieves my heart when it has to happen. But generally speaking, I've gotten along very well. I pastored this church into 22 years now. We've never had what you call major trouble. We've had this uh, misunderstanding time or two, lose a handful of people a time or two down through these 22 years, but we've never had any trouble in this church. I've tried to cooperate. I've tried to love people and folk have tried to cooperate with me and love me and we've gotten along and I'm glad it's that way. Uh, but the devil, he doesn't tip me against you but he battles me in my own heart. You see, I, I believe in you, but the devil don't want me to believe in myself. I believe you're holy, but he tells me I'm a rascal. I believe you're sincere, but he tells me I'm not. Dirty, lying rascal he is. I believe you're sincere. I believe I'm sincere also. Yes. In life sojourn, Satan fought me. He's battled me. I've had many fights, not with people, but with the devil, with myself. I want more holiness. The devil fights me along that line. I want more power. The devil fights me along that line. I want more dedication in my life. The devil fights me along that line. I want the best of God upon tabernacle. The devil fights me along that line. I want nothing for myself. What I want, I want for God's glory, but the devil fights me. 
battles me in life's sojourn, Satan has fought me. In eternity past, the Holy Father thought of me. In Calvary's work, the Holy Son bought me. In sin's night, the Holy Ghost sought me. In the sinner's wilderness, the grace of God brought me. And in life's sojourn, the devil has fought me. But I have two other things. In life's trials, in life's trials, the potter wrought me. Now the proof text is in Ephesians 2 and verse number 10. In the trials of life, the great potter, the potter with the capital P, a type of God, the great architect, the great potter has wrought me and is making out of me the vessel of honor that he foreordains that I be from the foundation of the world. In Ephesians 2 and verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But verse number 10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus under good works. And I'm told that that workmanship literally means poem. We are his poem. And through God's work in us, he's wrought in us. He's making us to rhyme in our lives. When I started out, my life was a jangled up mess. But the potter has put me on the potter's wheel. And he's been shaping me and molding me. In a time or two, he's found a lot of flaws in my life. And when the flaws hit the potter's wheel, my vessel breaks into a thousand pieces. But it doesn't cast me aside. It picks me up and works me again. And he's been working me over since I've been saved in the grace of God. Life's eternal potter in life's trial wrought me and is making me to rhyme, making me in the image God foreordained that I be from the foundation of the world. Now that's what we call predestination. I don't believe sinners are predestined to be saved or predestined not to be saved. I don't believe in predestination like that. That's the way the hard shells believe it. They believe that babies are predestined for hell or heaven when they get born. I don't believe that. I believe in whosoever will. But I tell you what I do believe about predestination. If you ever get a good case of old time Holy Spirit salvation, like old Dr. Bob Jones used to say about six inches beneath your collarbone on the left hand side. I've heard him say that a lot of times. If you ever get that, do you know what that is? How many of you folk know what that is? Let's see your hand. If you ever get that, I want to say to you, you're predestined to be made to the image God orders for you. Amen. Now that's believers' predestination. And once you get saved, that's when predestination begins to operate. Predestination has nothing to do with, with sinners. That has to do with the saints. And when God takes you in his hand, he's going to make you to conform to his image for you. Now he may break you down. He may whittle you down. He'll cut off the ragged ends. He'll smooth off the ragged ends. Sometimes it might hurt. The chastening of God may be severe. Sometimes when God rots you upon the wheel, it may hurt severely. But God knows the image that he plans for you. And he's making out of you day by day in the eternal potter's shop. A vessel of honor. Just as sure as you hear me, he's making me and you a vessel of honor. And so I can say to you, in life's trial, whatever they may be, 
They may be unpleasant, they may be hard, they may be heartbreaking. But in every trial of my life, the potter is making me a vessel of honor. Now that takes the bitterness out of the tears. That gives you some light in the black midnight. And that gives you some hope when it seems hope is gone. To know that everything that touches my life is to be used of God to make me into the image that God foreordains that I be. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to God's eternal purpose. And I believe everything works together for good. Heartache, heartbreak, disappointment, persecution, tragedy, financial reverses. Everything works together for good. You believe that? I do. We are his workmanship. We are his poem. And it's God's business to make my life rhyme. Now, I don't know how to make it rhyme, but God knows how to make it rhyme. And God can take the tragedies and turn them out to his glory. God can take the heartache and turn them out to his glory. God can take the disappointments and make them renowned to his glory, you see. So I say to you in life's trial, the potter wrought me. He's making me tonight the vessel he wants me to be. That's salvation. And I don't think God's going to let anybody get into heaven crippled up or disfigured. Do you? I don't think anybody would get into heaven unsanctified, unclean. I don't think anybody would be in heaven with Seth predominant. Now, you may have a lot of uncleanness about you now, or a lot of Seth about you now, but God's going to get that out of you. He'll put you on that potter's wheel, and he'll get that out of you. It may hurt. The process may hurt. But he's going to get Seth out and uncleanliness out. And when you go to heaven, all God's children will be presented faultless without blame and holy. Every one of them. There'll be nobody in heaven sucking their thumb and being selfish and self-centered. No sorry. Everybody in heaven will give glory to the Savior. Amen. God's making me to conform. The potter's making me upon the wheel. He's rotted in me that which God plans that I be. Last but not least, in natural ignorance, the Holy Word taught me. Now, the natural man is ignorant about spiritual values. You couldn't deny that. Suppose you turn the natural man loose and let him find God. Just let him find God his own self. Do you think a natural man could find God? Or do you think a natural man, even with a Bible in his hand, could find God without the aid of the Holy Spirit? You think so? No. No. Uh, this Bible is a closed book to a natural man. I don't care how much education you have. You may have a PhD, MA, BA, whatever you may have. Unless you have the Holy Ghost as the guide and the teacher, this Bible is a closed book. You don't understand it, and you can never understand it, let alone get saved. No, this Bible's dead to the natural man. It has no life to the natural man. It means nothing to the natural man. But when the Holy Ghost uh, illuminates its pages and makes its word sharper than a two-edged sword and makes its message the most precious news ever heard by mortal ear, make its destiny the chief end of life, when the Holy Spirit does that, then this Bible becomes illuminated. It burns it uh, regenerates. 
it illuminates, it gives birth of that soul into God's family. And since I've been saved by the grace of God, in my natural ignorance, the Holy Ghost has taught me about Jesus and taught me the way of Jesus and taught me the things of Jesus and taught me the things of the Bible. Now you may go to school to learn reading and writing and arithmetic, but you don't go to school to learn the Bible. You might learn the history of the Bible in school, but you'll not learn the spirit of the Bible except you get on your knees and become taught by the blessed spirit of God. The Holy Word has taught me in you and revealed to me in you the truths God wants us to know. And it's amazing the wisdom that a natural man can accumulate from the Word of God. Not from himself. The natural man is foolish. And the Word of God is foolishness to the natural man until the Holy Ghost takes the Word of God and teaches him and illuminates his mind. But when the Spirit of God takes the Word and illuminates his mind, then he's taught by the Word of God. And that teaching can bring him to a real knowledge of the Savior. He can know him. I know him in whom I have believed. I know him. And I'm not boasting that I'm, uh, that I'm wise in myself. No. But I'm saying to you, I know Jesus because of what the Bible has taught me concerning the Savior. And I owe all my knowledge, I owe all my knowledge of the Savior to this blessed book that tells me about the Savior. Now here's a panoramic picture of salvation. In eternity past, the Holy Father thought me. In Calvary's work, the Holy Son bought me. In sin's night, the Holy Ghost sought me. In the sinner's wilderness, the grace of God brought me. In life's sojourn, the devil fought me. In life's trials, the potter wrought me. And then in natural ignorance, the Holy Ghost taught me that which I need. The Holy Scriptures taught me that which I need. That's a panoramic picture of salvation. So great salvation we enjoy. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, we come to thank you tonight that where sin abounded, grace doth much more abound. And except for the grace of God, we could have never sung the song that Brother Aiken led us to sing a while ago, Amazing Grace. It would have been presumptuous on our part to even open our mouths, except by the grace of God we know it to be a fact. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And we thank you tonight for so great salvation that we know in our heart. Now, Lord Jesus, if there's one sinner in the building under the judgment of God, marking time until that execution becomes a reality, I, may, I pray they may flee to the Savior tonight and become refused and sheltered beneath the arms of the Almighty. I pray it may be so. And then, Lord God, if there's one believer here tonight that might maybe in a, ba a battle with Satan or with Seth, I pray this great salvation will encourage them to press on. Grant, O oh God, we not give up the fight, but press on, serving God as faithfully as we can. In Jesus' name, heads about, eyes closed. May we stand to our feet, everybody. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.